Do you feel those shivers down your spine? Do you feel the hair on your neck standing up? When you look over your shoulder, do you see three indistinct shapes in the distance? Well, don't worry. It's just the boys. The pod people. The boys are back in town. Boys are back in town. So we're back. Uh, I'm your host, Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm joined as always by Ben Sheets. Hello, hello. And this week we are joined once again by Cleveland Mosier of Light Arc Studios. Welcome back, Cleve. Hello again. It's good to be back. We're glad to have you, especially because tonight... We are discussing one of my favorite horror movies, and uh, I think we can say across the board that we all love this movie a lot. We are talking about It Follows by David Robert Mitchell um, from 2015. This is a movie that we have all seen many times. Several times. Ben and I just watched it again yesterday for probably the sixth or seventh time. Yeah, uh, you said you just rewatched it today too, Cleve, right? Yeah, for the fourth or so time and um i really don't care how many times i've seen this movie it's still entertaining every single time this is a a fantastic example of indie filmmaking shot on a budget of a mere 1.3 million which is extremely low it by 2016 had grossed over 20 million so it recouped its budget 20 times so if that's not a success i don't know what the fuck is I'll drink to that. But yeah, I I think the the reason it does so well is because the script is really tight and incredible. Oh my god, um, yes. I remember when I was originally trying to write a screenplay, the It Follows screenplay was one of the first I went to to look at because it's so tightly constructed. It's very uh, concise. I would say it's pretty much a perfect script. And that's something that I won't say about a lot of movies. I really don't have any sort of gripes with this movie, Um, especially after how many times I've seen it. I pick up on new little nuances every single time, including... Uh, When we watched it yesterday, I noticed stuff that I had not noticed on my numerous other watches. And when you can see when you can see a movie that many times and still find new things in it, uh, that is uh, basically the highest praise I can give, I think. When I went to watch it today, first I watched it just to rejog my memory. But um, my other goal in watching it was to try and find some gripes with it, try and find some nitpicks or subtleties that I had problems with, and I was pretty hard-pressed to find anything. I, yeah, what a what a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, besides the fact that they have, like, 20 retro TVs in their house, I can't think of any other... Well, uh, honestly, the... the for the, me, that's a plus, so... I, <laughs> no, I kind of agree. Like, one of the things that I love so much about this movie is how it's virtually impossible to pin down in any specific era. Like, I mean, it's obviously somewhat modern, because we see the girl at the very beginning, uh, you know, on a cell phone talking to her dad, and uh, the Yara character has that little, uh, like 
clamshell, what looks like a like a handheld like pocket mirror, but it's got like two screens and she's reading books on it. But at the same time, most of the cars are from, like, the 60s or 70s. Uh, They're always watching, like, old 40s or 50s era uh, films on their old retro TVs. Um, The decor of a lot of the houses is very reminiscent of the 70s or 80s. Um, Which, I mean, you get when you shoot Detroit. Well, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, I think Detroit is kind of the perfect setting for a horror movie like this or just a horror movie in general we've been seeing that pop up uh you know in other films too like uh don't breathe is also set in detroit apparently michigan offers very nice tax incentives for filmmakers um which is the reason that they uh, set and shot It Follows in Detroit is uh, for, for tax incentives. No, but I, I think you're getting at something really important with the, the timelessness thing. Yeah. Because I, I think it, it would be easy to argue that this movie has sort of an 80s slasher film sensibility. For sure. Uh, it definitely, in terms of pacing, is very reminiscent of like Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, in terms oh, yeah. of how it's structured out. Well, but the thing is, unlike a lot of other less successful things, it doesn't dive for nostalgia. No, it doesn't not at all. it doesn't dig for callbacks to an era. The the timelessness is a huge plus. Um so while it has, you know, kind of more of a throwback sensibility in terms of style and pacing I, I think it is successful in being timeless as a whole. Right, which I it's, think is it's really important uh, for movies to to try to create a sense of timelessness too. Because I think because it keeps them from dating themselves when you go back and watch them decades down the line. You know, the best horror movies from any past decade are the ones that still ring true in some extent even now um and you see that a lot in horror films of the 70s uh in fact david robert mitchell uh listed his biggest stylistic influences in writing this movie from like john carpenter and george romero and i think that shows very plainly because this movie plays out like a like a movie from the 70s and it's got that same kind of pacing and and style to it you know it, and, and, this, and definitely soundtrack as well um, oh yeah piece, just i mean of course highlight of the film is probably just the soundtrack he got disaster piece to do the score for this because he was a big fan of uh the game fez which disaster piece did the the score for and so he contacted him and was like i want you to do uh the score for this movie as well an amazing score it's Fantastic. very reminiscent of like john carpenter scores and uh goblin and, yeah, uh, very very dark synthy uh, kind of. And it's those, and it's like you can tell they're 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 homemade synths too, like that they're 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 custom built and they're they're traditional analog. Like you can you can fucking hear the tubes, <laughs> like it's just such a real sound. 
Like, yeah. I know. I um, love it. The score is one of my favorite things. I listen to the score sometimes when I'm working on stuff. I've had it in my Spotify for a while. It's yeah. uh, a soundtrack that I go back to on a regular basis just because it's so fucking good. Same. Yeah. If, um, uh, and yeah, for anyone listening, uh, yeah, if, if, if that really, if the, it follows uh, soundtrack gets you, gets you going, uh, like it does for me. Uh, I would also recommend uh, some of their other work, uh, like Hyperlight Drifter, which I think they put out either the same year or the year after. Year after, yeah, 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 2016 mm-hmm. for Hyperlight. Highly recommend that as well. That's a beautiful, beautiful take on. I uh, saw that uh, Disaster Piece is also scoring uh, David Robert Mitchell's new movie that's coming out later this year, Under the Silver Lake. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it just for the soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It's not a horror film, uh, but the trailers look very intriguing, and I'm really excited. Yeah, the the trailers make it seem like kind of an inherent vice type of thing, where it's like a, a mystery where the main character is like always a couple steps behind the rest of the it's story. It's like, yeah, it's like a stoner conspiracy theory where the conspiracy theory turns out to be not just a theory. Um, I'm very but intrigued. So you, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm, no, I'm excited. Um, but let's dive into It Follows a little bit. Um, this... Uh, before we do, um, I did. I definitely did want to like make a note of this and and put this out there though. Like for for anyone anyone listening, if you haven't seen the film yet, like before we we get into the the the, the minutia of it and any spoilers, uh, watch it. Watch it's, on it's on Netflix. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's very. I, I know like that's a cliche available. to say like, oh, it's it's on Netflix. Why haven't you seen it yet? And I I usually roll my eyes when people say that, but this is one of those few exceptions where I I won't roll my eyes. I I will legitimately wonder. It's yeah, it's such a spectacular film. If you're a fan so. of 70s style slow burn horror, like this is uh, definitely going to be something that's right up your alley. So yeah, if you oh. haven't seen it yet, I know you've got a Netflix account. Everybody does. Everybody has access to one, even if you're not the one paying for it. Uh, stop this episode oh. right now and go watch this movie and pick back up with us. Uh, you won't be disappointed. So you've you've been warned. Yes, and because really, the less you know, the better going into that film. Yeah, I think so. Because sure. there's there's a there's a lot to unpack, and like I said, I've I've picked up on a lot of uh, little nuances over time. Um, I my junior year of college, I think, or maybe it was my the first semester of my senior year. Um, I took a uh, uh, a horror film class. And uh, one of our final assignments for the semester was to watch this movie, and we had to write an analysis of it. And uh, not not to boast or brag, but I got the highest grade in the class. My teacher told me so. A D plus. <laughs> got a D plus. <laughs> I understand this movie kinda. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's uh, so your basic premise is um, there is a curse that is sexually transmitted where a mysterious sinister entity will follow you at a walking pace until it catches you and rapes you to death which sounds like a joke but it is not it will rape you to death you wouldn't think that a a, a monster that 
just follows at a walking pace that you can escape from just by getting in a car and driving away would be very scary but the fact that it never stops and that it always knows where you are it really creates this incredible sense of impending doom where you're just buying yourself time you're never really safe you can get as far away as you want but eventually it will catch up with you yeah this is terrifying such a sense of dread to the idea of it because you know it it is easy to get away but how long are you going to be able to run you know well, right, and the the toll that it take that it would take on your psyche and your just general well being of constantly being paranoid. Where is it? When is it going to finally catch up with me? And then I'm going to have to just run from it again. And the only way to get rid of it is to uh, pass it on by having sex with somebody else, um, and to further increase that that sense of unknown dread if it kills the person that you give it to it will come right back to you so it just keeps going back down the line um so it's even when you've gotten rid of it you can't say that you've really gotten rid of it yeah i i heard a uh, i caught a comment Online, I forget where uh, that referred to it as an ST demon. <laughs> yes, which which it is basically. But one of the things that uh, I've always, or maybe not always, but after my second or third time seeing it, what I have sort of started to think of the the creature is it's it seems to be a metaphor for the aftermath of being sexually assaulted or abused yeah there there are those qualities to it especially like uh at the end of the film when she sort of she sees that uh, the the creature is like is it her father right yeah um, it, it changes shape it can look like people that you know or a stranger so it it yeah. may never reveal itself to you the same way twice yeah. i think one of the reasons it's very successful the concept is is very is very nebulous is is very terrifying and that like because you can't necessarily pin down what it's a metaphor for because it was a dream that the the writer director had yeah um that's where he he got the inspiration or a nightmare yeah that he had um and i think that a lot of metaphor tie-ins were built in around that general concept but i did definitely want to throw that in there before before we were we start we start trying to figure out you know all the 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 things that they could represent and, and whatnot, like and sure for, for anyone listening who wasn't aware of that fact. That well, what just to what make sure we were aware of it? What works so what works so well about this movie too is that you are given sort of the rules that this monster abides by, um, but other than that, there is very little to no explanation of about what it really is. The film gives you enough that 
it can be interpreted in different ways. And I don't think any of those are necessarily right or wrong, um, which is what's scary about it, because that that's always the best kind of horror when it leaves things to your imagination, because it's natural for the human brain to sort of gravitate uh, towards what scares it the most in terms of meaning with these kinds of things. So you're really most likely to uh, project whatever is the scariest meaning of this creature uh, onto it, which I think works really well, and it makes it sort of universally terrifying. Whereas something like Michael Myers is scary because he's a a big serial killer in a mask who will stab you and kill you, um, but there's not much more to him than that. Yeah, the motive yeah, well, is entirely decipherable. Like yes. from from the ground up for for something like Michael Myers or or even Freddy Krueger. Like there's an origin story. He they became this creature, and this is how. Meanwhile, the creature and it follows. Like we we don't we we never learn what its origin is. You know how it came to be and why it's there. Exactly. Uh, we just know what it does. There's and no that, there's not no Doctor Loomis in this movie to explain everything away and also it's completely invisible to anybody who it has not been passed to so in the film we only see it through the lens of our protagonist jay we see what it looks like in its different forms to her but just because it looks like something to her doesn't mean it would necessarily look the same to anybody else. So there's also that sort of projection on it. And throughout the film, we see it take the shape of multiple people that she knows, like her father in uh, that scene at the pool and sort of the climax towards the end. Um, and when they're on the beach, uh, it's in the shape of... Uh, Small boy. Of the well, and one th- one of the things that I noticed this time is uh, that boy that it takes the shape of is one of the neighborhood children that we see a couple of times in her neighborhood. I had never noticed that until. Watching right. it yesterday, yeah. uh, I noticed it specifically later on when uh, they're like running out of the house or something, and we see that boy like pull up on his bike, the kid in the red hoodie. It that's the kid that it was in one of the previous scenes, Fantastic. and another one of those instances is uh, after it takes the shape of the boy at the lake when she runs and gets into the car and drives away, and it's coming up the hill towards her. It's in the shape of the girl that it kills at the very beginning the first girl that we see and it also takes the shape of her friend yara which is a great scene when they're sitting on the beach because we see it coming up down the path and until that point we have not seen yara in that scene so it's like oh here comes yara to join them on the beach and then it cuts to her out in the water and is like hey do you guys don't you guys want to get in the water and swim and it cuts back it's like oh shit that's the monster and what i love too is once you're aware of the monster in pretty much every scene in the background there's always somebody walking towards the camera maybe not necessarily straight at it but there's always somebody walking towards 
our protagonists in the scene. So you're constantly wondering, is that the monster? Is that the monster? Is that the monster? Just any random person who's out walking around could be the monster. Yeah, they do a great job of keeping movement within the frame at all time to keep you uneasy. They use a lot of wide-angle lenses to shoot this, too. So there's always a lot going on in the frame. and yeah, A lot in the periphery. Right, exactly. So it's it does a really fantastic job of sort of putting you in the shoes of the protagonist so that even you as the viewer are paranoid at all times. You know, you don't feel safe for Jay because you know that there's this impending doom that's coming down on her, which is uh, a, another theme that uh, David Robert Mitchell pulled straight out of Halloween, you know, John Carpenter uh, in in that scene in uh, in the beginning of Halloween when Jamie Lee Curtis is in the classroom. Um, she is the, the, the teacher is discussing like impending doom and trying to escape your fate and stuff like that which of course then translates into Michael Myers you know later in the film being that impending doom and that's a major major theme and it follows you know that yeah. sort of the the inescapability of death you know you can you can run all you want but at some point you're gonna die and there's nothing that you can do about that you just you know you never know when it might you know, be your time, and that's translated literally in this film in the form of the monster. One of the most, to me, like terrifying aspects of that revelation is that it, by the end of the film, it flips right back to reality, and you remember that, oh, if you take the monster out of the scenario, that's still the case for everyone. I mean, like, and that, that level of existentialism is, is something we face every day, and it's that, that brutal right, reality exactly. that... that you know, your your life will end, and that's that's just the way it goes. And uh, recognizing that as a is a, a forever truism is di- very difficult. And uh, there's a similar quote in the film pulled from a piece of literature uh, from, from the idiot, yeah, the that, that Yara's reading. Um, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is which is a nice little part. touch. She's quoting from the idiot throughout the movie, always sort of about you know this this impending doom, which is you know very pertinent um yeah yeah, the the quote is something about knowing that in 20 minutes in 10 in half a minute right now uh you will stop being a person and your soul will leave your body and there's you know and all that's certain is that that is a fact yeah no it's nice it's nice that they pulled from russian literature for that as well like it just even even though the that quote is so on point for the film, it didn't feel heavy-handed, no. uh, because because of its sort of like cultural displacement, and that was that was nice. That was that's the yeah, thing. Nothing awesome. nothing in this movie feels heavy-handed. It all fits. And so much perfectly. of it should. It's, yeah, like, that's the thing. Like like almost every every scene is like carries aspects of you know seventies and eighties horror films that I've I've seen done and redone countless times. But this movie it brings so much of its own light to it that it never felt that way. I, I was thinking about that when you were describing it earlier and the, the best, like the best metaphor I've got for it is that like, um, you know, as, as a painting, it's, it's 
painted with the same brushes, but it's a very, very different, you know, image. You know, they use a lot of the same tools in this movie, but it's very much so its own thing. Well, that's that's what's so cool about this movie, too, is that it's it's totally original. It wears its influences on its sleeve, but it feels unlike any other movie I've ever seen. It it has so many nice little homages where I'm like, oh yeah, that's a Carpenter thing, or oh yeah, that's a Romero thing, but it doesn't feel like it's ripping anything off. It it feels wholly original and unique. It takes inspiration without ripping off, for sure. It does a really good job of becoming an al- amalgamation of all these different things while still feeling pretty wholly original. Yeah. Um, it's it's the difference between homage and imitation. Yeah. Personally, I I really love and we were talking about this a little bit before, but how nebulous and open-ended the uh the metaphor of the film is because I know you were mentioning you saw it as a metaphor for sexual assault. I I I can see that. I also see it as a metaphor for loss of innocence because I think those two things kind of go hand in kind hand. Kind of hand in hand. Uh they they're similar, but I think uh can be unique. Um because the thing is, you know, to get it to keep from following you at least for a while is you have to actively give it to someone else you know and it's that becoming of you know a sort of villain because you have right. to you have to knowingly infect someone else with it it's about self-preservation um which is another thing that i think this movie handles really well is there are i believe three sex scenes in this movie and none yeah, of them it's kind of up in the air depending if you count the monster attacks or not. yeah sure <laughs> not not counting not counting the monster attacks there are three sex scenes in this movie and none of them are erotic in any no. way the only yeah. one only the first one when she's having sex with uh the the guy she's dating uh in the car who who passes it on to her that's the only scene where there's any sort of sincerity to the sex but it's still not like overly eroticized after that sex is used as a means of survival it's very clinical she has sex yeah, and even with that people... first scene is used as a means of survival it's just not known to the viewer yeah. right right exactly it's it's him doing the same thing instead of her you know yeah. it's uh it, it's... your point still stands because yeah like, yeah there's our, we're seeing it from her perspective and to her it seems wholesome and genuine and and none of the characters are overly sexualized in this movie either which is uh very uncommon for horror movies because sex is is a very uh common trope in horror films and usually it's the the teenagers who are off having sex who get killed by the monster or the killer or whatever you know as sort of like a like a punishment for their immorality or whatever the the kids 
who are smoking dope and banging each other, you know, it's kind of like a punishment uh, for them being bad or whatever. But... You know, even even though like the main character uh, who's played by uh, Micah Monroe, um, the only other thing I've seen her in is The Guest, which is also a fantastic fucking movie. Um, like she she is very pretty, but she's never presented as a sexualized object. You know, even when we see her like in her bathing suit or her underwear or whatever it's always very modest you know it's not like gratuitous shots of her ass and a thong or anything like that like you'd see in something more exploitation-y you know the sexuality is, is sort of has its own its its own dangers in this movie um which is kind of why i view it as as representative of sexual assault especially because like after jay is you know given this curse it takes a long time for her friends to believe that something is happening because it's so specifically happening to her because she's the only one who can see the monster and she's constantly having these panic attacks and freaking out and her friends want to be supportive and loving and they're trying but they don't really understand which is kind of similar to like if somebody is raped or sexually abused in real life you know they're they're they become apathetic or depressed or distant and you know they may be prone to anxiety and panic attacks that you don't really understand all you can do is try to be supportive and help in any way you can even if there's no really good concrete way to do that right and because you know you you yourself cannot or the the person trying to help in that scenario cannot relate and exactly that that brings um up uh, one of the themes that i i strongly pull from this film and that's um displacement specifically uh and i i like i like that word around it too because it goes back to detroit you know it's a it's a city that's sort of been abandoned and one of the formerly most prosperous cities in the country you know motor city usa where all the cars were being made and the birthplace of motown and now it's just dilapidated and ruined and abandoned oh yeah and much much like the the guy at the beginning of the film yeah it's it, it has a, a sort of nostalgia to it now, you know, of those days. Uh, I like I like that scene, you know, at the beginning when they're they're picking people that they would switch with. Um, yeah. And he picks the kid because it's like, hey, if you could start your life over again, if you could, you know, you had a fresh start. And later on too, when they they go to the 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 building, there's that whole bit. I think is is it Yara who talks about how her family wouldn't let her out of the suburbs. You know, they had that rule: you can't, you can't leave the suburbs. Right. Yeah. Their their parents wouldn't let them go south of Eight Mile. That's right. That's it. That's it specifically. Yeah. Um, and they never really understood why until they got older. Right. Um, yeah. Which is Even which ties into the to go to the state fair. Yeah. 
which ties into the the loss of innocence thing like Ben was talking about where yeah, okay. you you don't really understand certain things as a kid because your parents shelter you from them because that's their job as parents you know to give you good upbringing and shelter you from the bad things in the world and then at a certain point there's nothing they can do anymore you got to grow up and the harsh reality is sort of come crashing down on you and you become really disenfranchised and jaded you know as you get older so i think that's that's definitely uh no i think you're i think y'all are both right those are definitely spot-on interpretations i think it's neat because even the the anachronistic sort of approach to to era in the film reinforces that right it it feels out of time not just for the sake of style but because it feels displaced in time you know when you see the girl with the almost like sci-fi phone you know but all the cars are from the 70s and 80s it it definitely throws you off and And they're watching movies on old tube tvs and stuff like that yeah any of the 20 ones that they have in their house (laughs) they have a lot of tube tvs in their house i find that really funny yeah me too i i didn't realize how many until this time when i counted like four or five tube tvs in their house and it's like it's, it's excessive almost but another thing that i've that i've always found very interesting is that at least to Jay, since she's our lens for for this film, um, the monster always, without fail, appears either naked or in like in white. In white, uh, which could be viewed as a loss of innocence or purity, um, which goes in with my sexual assault thing. Um, or, you know, but not only in white, but also in uh, bedclothes or underwear. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mm-hmm. old the old lady who follows her in the in the college is wearing a nightgown uh, when she sees her dad. He's wearing uh, like a wife beater and boxer shorts uh, when the monster takes the shape of Greg before it g- breaks into his house to kill him. It's wearing like long johns uh, when she sees it in the kitchen. One of the first times it attacks her. It's uh, the woman is like beaten up and has her bra torn halfway off and she looks like she's been battered. And so it's always in some sort of state of undress, uh, which I, I think is it, part of the reason why I sort of view it in, in that particularly like sexual assaulty way. You know, it's it's never... It's never fully clothed, you know, um, yeah. which which I you know is is a, a very interesting design choice. Sometimes it's outright naked. Yeah, it, there's there's so much detail packed into this movie, but not in a way that's overwhelming. You know, a lot of times when directors will try to put in a bunch of different shit, it's like sort of bombarding you with detail and it's overwhelming but with this it's more subtle which is why you pick up on so many different things over time part of why it's so effective i think definitely and you you brought up something interesting that i um i wanted to to catch on and actually i wanted to run it by you guys to see if you had any thoughts on this go for it that jay uh always sees the monster in in white 
Uh, and I think for the majority of the film, except for the, the, the one in the final shot, like we, we as the viewer also almost always see it in white. Right. Um, uh, because we're seeing it through her eyes. Yes. What I found really interesting is that, and I guess we could, there's a lot of ways you could just, you could write it off as just saying, that's just how like the monster shows itself to her specifically. Um, and the reason I don't think it's just how the monster is in general is, or maybe they broke their own rule and it's a flaw in the film. Who knows? That is when they're in the movie theater at the beginning of the film, uh, the, the guy, uh, what's, do you all remember his name? Um, uh, the fake name he gives her is Hugh, but I, his real name is Jeff. Um, uh, so Hugh, uh, when he turns around and he points to the back when they're, they're picking out new people, they're still playing that game. He says the girl in the yellow dress. Yes. And she turns around and doesn't see it. And it's, it's, you know, uh, made clear that it's the monster, but we never see it, you know, because at that point the the film is choosing to not show, show us the monster. So it's wearing a yellow dress in that scene, which is, is interesting to me. Well, I, Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's, I'm sure that's intentional. I think it's you you hit the nail on the head with that. We know for a fact that it reveals itself to people differently because as Hugh tells her after uh, he passes it on to her and uh, tapes her to the wheelchair to sort of prove to her that it's real and explain the rules, he says that it, it can look like somebody that you know and that maybe it does that just to hurt you. So yeah, it's, it's clearly it's, toying with the person. Like there's no, there's no question about that. Like, right. It, it's very, it's very subjective. And even though she has consensual sex with him, cause they're on a date immediately afterwards, you know, he chloroforms her and kidnaps her and tapes her to the chair, you know, it, not to hurt her, but to show her that, that this is what's happening to give her the warning and to tell her to look out for it and pass it on. But she obviously for very good reason feels violated by. Yeah. It's, it's something I love about that scene too. You, you really, um, like when you, when you've gained his perspective, you recognize that that is the best way he could have done that. Like for what he did, I mean, he still he gave her the monster. Like it's a horrible thing, right? Well, um, it's a survival uh, method, you know. Also, yeah, uh, you know, I'll have to I'll have to remember that as a euphemism in the future. But uh, the, the the problem is that if you were to do that to someone, like that's that's the safest way you could, you know, like to to present it to her, give her all the information she requires to handle it. But without that information, you know, from from her perspective, it's sociopathic, and it's it's. Uh, horrifying. Without without intent, there it feels like you know this horrible game is being played with you. Right. Well, it is. It is in a lot of in a lot of ways, especially because, um, like after the first time she goes on a date with him, or the first time we see her on a date with him, you know, she's talking with her sister afterward and her sister's like have you guys uh you know implying like have you had sex yet and she says no but i know he wants to and you know that's an innocent thing like you know you're going out you want to have sex with a person that you're attracted to whatever but then that becomes like yeah he he wants to have sex because he wants to get rid of it he wants to pass it on and in that way even though the sex they have is consensual it is 
sort of like a different form of rape. You know, he has sex oh, with yeah. her under false pretenses and then chloroforms her and kidnaps her and he's given her this horrible thing. So she obviously feels violated justifiably by what he's done to her. And I think that is why or partially why she sees the monster the way she does and why it appears to her in these sort of uh uh horrifyingly sexual forms you know uh because she associates the the monster with you know the fact that she was she was kind of raped so you know that's where i that's where i pull the 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 sexual assault metaphor from and i i think that yeah it's it's specific to her but in the terms of the movie we only ever see it from her perspective so it's kind of specific to us in that sense as well and maybe that's not necessarily the way that David Robert Mitchell intended it, you know, considering that he pulled this concept from a nightmare and added the sexual aspect, you know, just from as being sort of a, a, an adult thing as a transition from childhood to adulthood. But, you know, it's it's not an incorrect way to read it. You can you you know, you can justify seeing it that way and that's one of the many many things that's so 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 well done about this movie one of the things that i uh that i think is also very open to interpretation and i i would kind of like to get y'all's opinion on it because i think this is one of those things that's kind of up in the air i've always kind of wondered if maybe jay was sexually abused by her father as a child have you guys thought about that at all? Because he's absent from the movie. You know, we we never get an explanation what happened to him. It can be assumed that he's dead or that he ran out on them. But in the climax of the film, you know, when they try to to kill the monster in the pool by throwing all the electronics into the pool, you know, it in that scene specifically it appears to her as her father. And when her sister asks, what do you see? I don't want to tell you. When it comes in the room, exactly. She says, I don't want to tell you. Mm. She doesn't want to tell her sister that it looks like their dad. I think, I think it's, it's, it's very possible. Uh, it's, it's, very, and it's, it's very reasonable considering the themes of the film that that is the case. I think it's also equally possible that, that she just feels abandoned and displaced by her by her father or yeah that could be too the only um, the only thing be, because like her personal approach to sex before that point was not necessarily the approach that i would pin on someone who has been abused i could be very wrong about that i'm very open to being wrong about that well uh, I, I think i think the thing is especially people who are abused sexually at a young age or in their formative years and this is something that i've picked up on from talking to people who have been is when you're sort of introduced to sex in such a horrible way and at a young age, you sometimes people like that become very promiscuous. It's sort of a, a self-destructive 
kind of thing just because it's something that they know but it, it, there's there's all of these conflicting emotions and ideas around sex and that sometimes people can use sex as a coping method in that way especially if they were sexually abused by a parent or a family member they they equate that abuse with love in a weird kind of way or they can at least because it's like oh you know they wanted me for sex that was their way of showing a twisted sort of love to me so if i'm feeling unwanted then i go out in search of sex you know it's it's a very complicated difficult thing that impacts a lot of people differently but it's something it's a means to like to, to better comprehend their their scenario yeah. yeah i never really saw jay as particularly particularly promiscuous no 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 no. no me either that that's just that was yeah. just an example i should say um, but and, and, yeah, and i think yeah portraying her as, as such wouldn't wouldn't have been a bad or would have been a bad call but i i i, I see exactly right. what you mean well because in the so. context in the context of this film sex is only a means of survival you own they're only using sex to pass on this curse to other people to take it off of them at least for a time you know it's it sex is not an erotic thing in in this movie and that's sort of why i i see it from that sort of abusive standpoint they're using sex as a means of survival rather than as a means of, uh, you know, gratification. Like most yeah. people would use sex. Um, I I don't know the thing. The thing about her dad is very up in the air. It's something that I've always questioned. There, right. she of and, course and definitely. I think leaving it up in the air, like it's all of the signs are there for that to be the case in the film, and I think that that's the right way for them to have done it. Uh, yes. That. That it is, it is left up and open, unless there's some small detail or Easter egg that was put in this film that we've missed thus far. Because I wouldn't be surprised to know that, to learn that either. The only um, thing, so. the only thing that contradicts that idea, and therefore contradicting my theory, is we see when she's getting ready for her date at the beginning of the movie that she does have a Polaroid of her dad stuck in her mirror directly under a Polaroid of her in the pool, which in and of itself foreshadows that scene at the pool where she's in the pool and then the monster attacks her in the shape of her father, you know, and tries to drown her in the pool. Yeah, Um, that's why I never really gathered that it was a sexual assault thing, just because I feel like she wouldn't have a picture I think it's a great yeah. mirror with the pool foreshadow, you know, kind of having the Polaroid there yeah. to have the, you know, kind of climax of the movie at a pool. Um, but I never really read it that way. I mean, it can, the thing about it is it's so open-ended and uh, doesn't 
guide you by the hand really right. about it that it could be interpreted because i mean you ways. could you could argue that if she was abused by her father at a very early age she would obviously have conflicting emotions about him you know between being a, an abuser and being her father who you know you're you're sort of conditioned to love your parents yeah. no matter what I, well, I mean, she would probably also feel that way if the, he walked out on them, too. Right, exactly. So, so no, it, it is very open-ended. Um, I That's why it was something that I wanted to talk about, because it's something that I'm unsure of as well, but I think is uh, ma- makes for an interesting discussion, because I think you could argue for it either way. Um, and not be right or wrong um, once again, which is what I love about this movie because there's so there's so much of that where you can you know you can really argue so many different angles and be you know be equally right and wrong potentially I think the most the most likely option actually in that scenario is that she just didn't have memory of the event or she had blocked it out that's um, also possible that's not very uncommon either is for people to to block out those those events especially if it happens at a very very young age that could very well be it is that the monster sort of uses that as an opportunity to to bring that that revelation about for her yeah the the monster the monster could be could be representative of those repressed memories coming to the forefront Yeah, and I think I think that would be the worst case scenario for sure. Yeah, is that like it's something that she hadn't really yet recognized either. Especially because uh-huh. after in, in when uh, she does escape in the pool, um, you know, after it's been grabbing her ankle and holding her underwater, when she pulls herself out of the pool, we see on her ankle that it's left its hand has left like these kind of burn marks and you could you could sort of look at that as like that's the scar of the abuse from her father that she didn't or that she was repressing until now and now the scar is there you know she's been you know it that those memories have been uh you know reawoken in her um you know maybe it's uh yeah i find that a bit far fetched but i do i do see it like there's there's something to that i think the um when it when it comes to the other the weird burn mark that it left on her or if that was just off and that's yeah yeah like half of it i mean it could it could be but we see directly two other victims of the the creature in the movie we see the the girl at the beginning um on the beach who has had one of her legs broken over backwards and we see the the creature uh raping greg to death in the form of his mother and neither of those characters have those same kind of burn marks from the creature's touch there's like a weird like kind of dampness about like like about the uh like there's a shot of the the hands clasped when it's with Greg yeah. and the mother but isn't there a burning too i'm trying to remember if there was no not nothing nothing overtly burning uh well that and that's the thing too is cuz what it does to greg is not the exact same what it does to the girl at the beginning 
you know they don't their their corpses don't look the same um so maybe you could argue that just like the the creature reveals itself differently to the people that it's stalking that uh the way it kills them is is specific to them as well yeah and that's the thing i think it's reflective of you know it kind of mirrors their own experiences um which is part of the reason why it's so horrifying yeah yeah i think you i think you make a really good point here um i want to talk about something a little less thematic and more structural sure um, I mentioned earlier the comparison to Nightmare on Elm Street, and I want to expand on that a little bit because I think it. both films do a really good job with kind of a ticking clock, uh, yeah, you know, definitely trope where, uh, where Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, you have Freddy Krueger haunting your dreams whenever you sleep, so the characters are instilled with with a sense of dread because they know they're fine they're safe as long as they can stay awake but they have to sleep at some yeah and that time will get to you eventually whereas in a similar way with this film i think it does a great job where you know there's a sense of dread there if you are infected because you can get away from it. You can even infect someone else with it, but you never know when it's going to come back around, and that fear is constantly there. And I think that ticking time trope works so well in horror because it really instills the sense of dread of the unknown. Yeah. And, you know, in a similar way to... Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street as well. I think the monster in this film really does a good job of reflecting the own uh, victims' worst fears. Yeah, you know? and it goes it goes back to that sense of inevitability that we're talking about. Um, the their their final. Uh, means of getting rid of the creature in this movie is that Jay has sex with Paul, her friend, who's, you know, had a crush on her for years, and then he goes, we see him driving around a seedier part of Detroit, and we see prostitutes on the street. So, you know, we're, we're to assume that he took it and gave it to a prostitute who will then, because of her line of work, pass it down to her other clients and so on which is clever but then at the same time in the last shot we see jay and paul walking down the sidewalk holding hands and there is somebody behind them walking towards them and it's like well that could be the monster or it could just be somebody walking on the street but no matter what even though for the time being jay has gotten rid of it at some point in her life it could make it back to her. She will yeah. never she will never ever in her entire life be able to feel truly safe because there is no way to permanently get rid of this trauma in a way. You know, this it's, death. The, the death death will always be there. 
Right. But it's also, you know, it's also like having PTSD after traumatic experience. You can cope with it and try to get rid of it in many ways, but you never know down the line when it might come back in a horrible way. And this monster is the same. You know, that's, it, that's a very good point, actually. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, I've I've heard uh, people who have, who have been in that scenario say like you never you're sort of always there. You know, you you never like when you when you deploy and you you see that kind of action, you never really come back. Right. From it. And you Jay know, will kind of all, part of you is always there. Jay will never in her life be able to stop looking over her shoulder wondering if some random person on the street is the monster back to get her again. And that's that's what's truly horrifying and yeah. why it, you know, it still leaves. It doesn't end really on a happy note. Yeah, they've well, gotten rid they've gotten rid of it for now, but there's no way to get rid of it. It's always going to be there. And that's why the horror of the film is so effective. I mean, they don't ever rely on jump scares. You know, it's all the sense of dread within this ticking clock that you have to run out essentially and well, one jump scare the shack at the beach is a is a jump scare yeah uh, kind uh, of also it, it, it's a jump scare you it's a very argue. good jump scare it's it's i think textbook how you should do one if you're going to put one in your film and again for a horror movie having one jump scare is like, pretty impressive but i did the yeah, the the, the brunt the majority of the horror, the actual visceral horror of the film, though, is not based on cheap impulse. It's based right. on 100%. that overarching 100%. sense of dread it's throughout the, yeah, the movie. It's the impending I, I doom. Say, that's, that scene for me was one of the least, that, or at least that, that moment or that fear tactic was one of the least terrifying for me in the film. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm glad it's in there. Something else that, that makes this film and the ending so tragic is that not only is this going to affect Jay for the rest of her life, but it's also going to affect all of her future relationships, romantic or otherwise, with anybody. Anybody that she becomes close with for the rest of her life is going to have to deal with her trauma and her panic and her paranoia about this coming back to haunt her which is just like with PTSD or you know dealing with any sort of traumatic experience is that you never know when it might rear its ugly head and if you're somebody who's close to that person it can be terrifying for you as well seeing somebody that you care about in such a state of panic and fear and anxiety and not and knowing that there's nothing that you can really do to make it any better so it's it you know there's there's layers of of fear and and horror here that you know does not end when the movie itself ends and that's how you do horror you want it to have a lasting effect. The best horror movies are the ones that follow you to bed, you know, that you're thinking. That literally does. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
the the one the ones that leave you thinking about it and leave you pondering and like wow that's really fucking horrible that's really scary that's how you do horror and that's how you do fear cheaper popcorn horror movies don't do that they might startle you a few times get your heart rate up but you know after the fact you know it's just a movie whatever you know i i most horror movies that i watch don't follow me to bed when i'm laying down at night in the dark you know it's just a it's just a movie but things like it follows like that's stuff that you think about and uh no i i i love this well, movie well and that's the thing too you know like the the monster of the film while it's kind of mystical in a way it is very grounded you know extremely yeah it is very grounded in that you know it is still taking human form and following you and you know like it it is a person following you throughout you know it's it's an experience that you can put yourself in even though you know that you're not having to deal with it literally like the characters in the film it's it's relatable in its horror you know you can you can think oh what the fuck would i do in that kind of situation i'm so glad i don't have a scary rape monster following me for the rest of my life you know because god can you imagine um yeah that... but we all do it's called hitting getting hit by a bus <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing about the movie like that's what gets me about it is it's like well i mean even if you don't have the monster following you like death is inevitable like that's that shit's still gonna get you at the end of the day like don't that's you what forget about, about dying like, <laughs> so are you saying like, you, you know, wanna wake up, you know it's just an existential fucking nightmare of a film you want an it follows front. maximum overdrive crossover where like where the giant mac trucks gain sentience and just start <laughs> following you constantly don't you forget <laughs> about your friend death <laughs> Don't you forget that you will die. die. <laughs> Ghost is on to something. They've I, seen this movie. I mean, movie. they are. Memento Mori. Like, it's, it's <laughs> shit. Well, shit. Uh... Should we should we rate this? I think we've gone pretty deep into this movie yeah, without getting into too up. many plot specifics. Um, yeah, yeah I, I guess I'll start. Um, I'm not going to reiterate too much of what I've said. All I will say in summation is that everything we've talked about is what makes this one of my favorite horror movies of all time and definitely one of my favorite horror movies of the last decade. And uh, especially for a feature-length directorial debut for David Robert Mitchell, I am incredibly excited to see what he's got in store. I know his upcoming film is not a horror film, but I I hope he goes back to horror because he's got a knack for it. And uh, I I think he's an extremely skilled filmmaker, very good writer. Um, I'm going to give this a a perfect 5 out of 5. I really can't think of... Uh, anything that I have wrong with this movie. This is a fantastic film. Yeah, uh, going off of that, you know, I think we did plenty of time unpacking some of the the thematic material of this film, so I'm going to kind of avoid that here and just kind of say, you know, I think in terms of pacing and construction this is a really tight uh film uh really intelligent in its simplicity 
uh, and sense of dread throughout. It it really is effective in its horror by remaining simple and to the point um, while staying open-ended without being too obtuse. Um, on top of that, I think this has one of... Well, definitely one of the strongest soundtracks of the decade. Oh, yes. Uh, but one of my personal favorite soundtracks of all time, honestly. Mine too. Um, Disaster Piece does a fantastic job with the soundtrack, bringing in inspiration by, you know, things like John Carpenter scores and the like, while remaining solely his own. The film is honestly one of the best pieces of horror to come out of the decade. Um, It's really a masterpiece, and I'm going to give it a 5 out of 5 as well. Um, It's really, really something to see. I won't uh, waste anyone's time uh, uh, everything y'all have already said. I I agree fully. I'd give it a 5 out of 5 easy. If I could give it more, I would. It's it's one of my all time favorite films. I think it's it's one of the best horror films. It's a producer's dream, <laughs> as movies go. I mean, two, two million dollar budget to to twenty million, you know, gross. Like that's 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 insane. Like I yeah, I have, I have a mad amount of respect for this film from every perspective, and and even then, even saying it's it's one of the you know the best the best horror films to come out of the decade, and then adding on top of that that the soundtrack is. One of is one of the best aspects of the film. I mean, it just goes to show like how great that score is. And yeah, I, I can't I, I can't say enough great things about about Disaster Piece and, and what they did on this 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 film. And I'll I'll forever be a fan of theirs for it. If you're interested in the soundtrack to this game, uh, Disaster Piece did a fantastic uh, kind of explainer slash tutorial. On his YouTube channel, uh, I think it's Rich Vreeland um, is his actual name for his YouTube channel. Um, but he talks about his process using Massive and creating custom synths with that. And it's really worth checking out if you're interested in the making of some of that. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be watching that. There's no doubt. All right. Well, that gives a uh, that gives it follows a unanimous perfect score of five out of five pods. Only the second time on this show so far that we have given a film a unanimous five out of five. The last time was the the Poughkeepsie tapes. Um, if you've not listened to that episode, check that out um, in our backlog. Um, yeah, I I this is an incredible movie. Uh, I think it is destined to be a classic it's only what like three years old now but i think this is a movie that's going to be studied by uh horror fans and uh just fans of film for years and decades to come well deserved um so if you listen to this episode and you didn't take our advice and go watch the movie beforehand, uh, I hope that our uh, very deep discussion of its themes uh, will encourage you to go check it out. I honestly think this is probably the deepest we've ever gone into a film thematically. We usually talk a lot about plot and execution, but uh, there's there's really a lot to unpack here thematically. Uh, and yeah, this is this is an 
incredible film. All right. Well, that'll bring us to the end of this episode. Uh, the 4th of July is coming up. Or I guess by the time it comes out, this comes Ooh, out, freedom. Uh, the 4th will have already happened. So in honor of our great country, what better way to celebrate that than to talk about the Purge franchise? Uh, next. <laughs> I wasn't warned about this when I came on. <laughs> next week, we will... Oh, no. Next week, we will be doing a full-length episode on the first three Purge films. Um, I can't say I'm terribly excited to watch those oh. again. I, I, don't, um, I don't know if I can, I can manage to be around for that. I don't, I don't know if I can, I can manage to sit down and watch all the Purge movies, y'all. I'm, I'm just I'm warning you now. <laughs> well, if you don't, that's okay. We won't blame you. But uh, it's, it's our civic duty to educate the masses on and I salute you how nasty it. the government yeah, is. And uh, after, after that episode next week, the following week, we will be doing an episode... Uh, devoted to the new Purge movie, The First Purge, which comes out on Wednesday, July the 4th. The, the First Purge, which is actually The Fourth Purge. The First Purge, <laughs> The Fourth Purge. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be purging, um, literally and figuratively. I'm probably going to have a, uh, I'm gonna have a puke bucket next to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have a puke bucket next to me. Next to me while we record because I'm gonna be throwing up a lot, uh, and the uh, alcohol has nothing to do with it. Because I will not be there. <laughs> so yeah, look forward to our thoughts on the Purge franchise the next two weeks. I've got a lot of thoughts, and not many of them are positive. Uh, but if you like the show, spoiler uh, alert! <laughs> spoiler alert! I don't fucking give a shit. Those movies suck. Uh, <laughs> if, if if you like the show, you can. Uh, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your fine podcasts. We'd really appreciate if you took a few seconds out of your day to do that. Help us work our way up in the charts a little bit and get our... Yeah, give these pod boys some love. Go share this with your friends. Get our get our sweet, tasty voices into their ear holes. You can follow us on social media at Facebook and Twitter at PodPeoplePod um, and you can also follow our Letterboxed page for a comprehensive list of uh, all the films we watch and talk about on the show, as well as links to the episodes if you have not listened to them. And uh, send us requests for films that you would uh, like us to talk about, and we'll add them to our watch list. Uh, letterbox.com, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com slash podpeoplepod. Um, and if you're a film lover and you don't use Letterboxd, you should. It's a, it's a great tool for uh, cataloging and rating your films, and you can write reviews on them as well. It's a, it's a great free resource that I would absolutely recommend. And they're not even giving us money to enjoy them so that's that's just goes to show how much we love the good folks at letterboxd you can follow me on twitter at mr van awesome and i'm on twitter at mr sheets cleave and i'm on twitter at light arc studios yes follow that light arc page uh if you are into video games and you want to see what we are all working on with our upcoming 
RTS horror game, It Stares Back. Also follow us on YouTube at Light Arc Studios uh, to see some of Cleveland's awesome artwork um, in uh, in speed painting videos. Uh, and we'll hopefully be having some, some of Ben's fantastic music on there yes. as well. And to witness some of my subpar editing skills. <laughs> oh, uh, hush, you. And uh, hopefully we'll be having some uh, early gameplay videos going up there sometime before too long. Just give you a little taste of what we're working on. Uh, Light Arc Studios, check that out. Uh, also, I don't know if we've ever mentioned on the show, but Cleveland is the one who did our fantastic cover art for the show. The nice little icon that you see every time you uh, open up one of our episodes. So um, yeah, I was looking at that the other day. I was thinking I'd like, another Passover. I need to want to get, come back around on that. It's it's a fun little piece of art. But I mean, it's great. It's, but if you if you want to update it and make it even snazzier, we would not complain. <laughs> Just it continually gets shinier and shinier <laughs> until until it's That's eventually just completely like, white. Just <laughs> up, like one Photoshop filter on it. Just for, for no reason. <laughs> well, thank you as always for listening to the show. Uh, we love and appreciate our listeners, and uh, we're happy that we can sit down and have these fun conversations and that you enjoy listening to them. We'll be back next week with uh, an episode about the Purge franchise as it stands, and then the following week we'll have a review of the first Purge. So stay tuned for that. Go out and see it in theaters if you want i guess we're gonna do it just because of the show but if you want to give them your money you know watch the movie so you can be on the same page as us when we talk about it yeah so uh i guess that wraps it up uh hashtag free eugene uh, yeah someone tell us where eugene is eugene. We, we we wish we knew um but uh yeah hashtag free eugene hashtag where is eugene hashtag eugene please come back we love you um but yeah stay tuned for a new episode next week thank you as always for listening i'm matisse van rossum i'm ben sheets and i'm cleveland Mosier. Keep looking over your shoulder. You never know who might be following you. 